0: Be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, and I'm going to read that for us. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning. So good to see you. Thanks for being with us. If you don't uh, know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. Uh, Really glad that you made it. So, uh, in January of 2007, it was it was on a Friday morning. Uh, there was a man that walked into a DC Metro station, and he leaned up against a wall next to a trash can. He pulled out a violin and he set the case down on the ground, and then he kind of threw in some change as seed money, which is you know try to try to get some people to start giving some money to what he was about to do, and then he began to play. He began to play from his violin. And what happened is what usually happens most days when this would take place in various parts of uh, the D.C. area. There were just a crowd of people there that walked right past him. They just kind of hurriedly went on about their day, didn't really pay much attention. Uh, Virtually nobody stopped to even listen to what he was doing. What they didn't realize is that that man that was standing against the wall was a man by the name of Joshua Bell. He was one of the most famous classical musicians of our time, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most expensive pieces of of, of uh, violin that has ever been designed, and uh, he he played and played and played, and no one paid any attention what's crazy about the story is that three days prior to this he actually filled up the Boston Symphony Hall where people were paying hundreds of dollars for a ticket and it was standing room only three days before this the whole place was packed and here he is on a Friday morning during rush hour in the DC metro station and people are just hurriedly walking right past him he played for 43 minutes on a 3.5 million dollar violin as over a thousand people passed by, and he made a total of thirty-two dollars and seventeen cents. Thirty-two dollars and seventeen cents. Uh, the people in the in the subway station, the people there in the metro station, were completely indifferent to what was happening. They were completely unmoved by what three days prior to this. People were just so in awe and wouldn't even cough during the songs. They would wait till the song was over before they would even cough because it was so breathtakingly beautiful. Now, th- this whole thing is uh, really was a social experiment put on by the Washington Post, and what they're trying to discern is how does someone's context affect the way that you receive something or don't receive something? How does somebody's context affect the way that you appreciate something or uh, don't appreciate something? And in this case... In this context, maybe it was because it was rush hour, maybe it was because they were uh, hurriedly on their way to work, maybe it was because of the, the context of a uh, subway station or whatever it might have been, but the reality was everyone in that metro station was just totally, totally unmoved by this thing of beauty that was happening right in front of them. Now, here's why I tell you that story. That whole story is in many ways a parable of what was happening in the church at Laodicea. What was happening in this church at Laodicea was, in many ways, this beautiful, beautiful reality of Jesus as the king offering them life and offering them beauty and offering them fullness and forgiveness and all these things. And the church was just completely—they had gotten to the place— where they were totally unmoved and indifferent to who Jesus was or why he even mattered. And, and what I want to show you today is really that life in 2018 is very similar for us as it is for them. And the same way that this church struggled is one of the primary ways that we in Oklahoma are going to struggle when it comes to Christianity and the significance of God. So that's where we're headed. Now here's what's crazy. We are wrapping up a series called Red Letters. We've been in the series for seven weeks, uh, and we've been looking at these churches that Jesus is writing letters to. He's addressed seven different churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and and so just imagine the circular route the, that uh, Jesus writes this, this letter to a church. He sends it with the Apostle John, and these go to seven different churches that kind of create the circular form in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And and in each of these letters, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to say some things that are really hard for them to hear. He wants to say, here's some ways that you've failed, or here's some ways that you've gotten off, or here's some ways that you've drifted. But what he also wants to do is he wants to say, here's some ways that you are uh, are doing really, really well. And he wants to encourage and commend them. And so with this church, what he does is he says some things that if you don't understand the background and the context of the city, you're going to have a hard time really grasping why he says the Things that he says. So, what I want to do first is just give, give you a little bit of context and background of this mysterious city, the city of Laodicea. So, if you don't know anything about the city, and I don't know why you would, uh, if, you, if you don't know anything about the city, the city of Laodicea was the city that sat in between four major trade routes. So imagine you had the city, and then each of these four gates leading out of the city, one went north, one went south, another went east, and then another went west. And all of these were major trade routes in the ancient world that created this this wealth in the city so that Laodicea was a city of culture and a city of trade, and all these things that were taking place in the city were being exported throughout the known world. And specifically, Laodicea was known for four things. I just want to give these four things to you. The first was their banking center. They had a highly developed banking center because the city was extremely wealthy. It was one of the wealthiest cities of its day. Think like a New York or a London. Because of the trade routes, because of all these strategic roads leading into and out of the city, it was a city filled with wealth and wealthy people. And so they had this highly developed banking center that they created. In fact, the the city was so wealthy that it was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD. And Nero, the, the Roman emperor, he offered to rebuild the city and use Roman tax dollars to rebuild the city. And Laodicea, they, they, they politely declined, no thank you, but we have enough money to rebuild the city on our own. And that's what they did. So they rebuilt the city. And one of the common phrases in Laodicea was, I've become rich and I need nothing. It was a city mantra. I've I've become rich and I've I've prospered. My business has done well. I don't have any more needs. It was a common thing that was said in the city. So they created to house the wealth of the city, this, this strategic banking center. And it was known in the ancient world for that. Second thing it was known for was their clothing industry. They're known for their clothing industry. They had a, a, a huge textile factory in the heart of the city, and they were specifically famous for their black wool clothing that they would make, literally from black sheep, right? So they just had all these black sheep, which wasn't uncommon, I guess, in Laodicea. And they would shear the sheep, and it was like the silky black wool, and they would turn that into clothing. And so people in the region, they knew Laodicea. Oh, yeah, they're the ones that have that huge bank. Oh, but they're also the ones that have that, that textile factory and make the clothing uh, stuff that everybody's wearing. And then the third thing they were known for was their medical school. They had an incredible, uh, a famous medical school, and the most famous medicinal product to come out of the city was this eye salve that they had designed and created that was curing blindness. People in the ancient world that had eye issues and were going blind, Laodicea had designed this eye salve that they would put on their eyes, and it would actually take away... Their blindness. So people would travel all over the ancient world just to make it to the city, not just for the, the clothing, but really for this medical school, both to learn and to get help. And then finally, the fourth thing that Laodicea was known for, and this is a really unfortunate thing, this isn't like the other three, this is a negative. They were known for their water system. Uh, they, they, they were known for their water system because in Laodicea they did not have any fresh water sources that were nearby. Now I want to show you this map. The, the city sat, I think it was up just a minute ago, but I want to show you again. The city sat in between two other cities that were nearby. You had uh, another city called Hierapolis, which was six miles down the road. And then to the other side there was a city called Colossae that was 11 miles down the road. Now Hierapolis had these hot springs. And they were kind of famous for their hot springs. So people would travel there. And it was like this relaxing place that you would go visit if you wanted to sit and just kind of unplug and relax in the hot springs. Or you would go to Colossae and they had this icy cold Refreshing water that was really, really refreshing and tasty to drink. And so people would go to Colossae for that fresh water. And because Laodicea didn't have any uh, water source that was inherent in the city, what they designed was this limestone aqueduct system that traveled from Hierapolis, from those hot springs, six miles down to Laodicea and I want to show you a picture of this. This is uh, actually in Laodicea. This, this is a limestone aqueduct and what would happen is that that hot water that was like like hot tub hot flowing from Hierapolis would end up in Laodicea but by the time it arrived it was it was this mineral rich water but by the time it arrived in the city it was lukewarm and it was really really nasty to drink. Think like the city water of Norman but not as bad as the city of water of Norman, right? No, I'm just kidding. It was way worse than the water in Norman. I mean, this is like profoundly bad water that was being pumped in. And so it, it was famous for some good things, but when people would hear about Laodicea, they'd be like, oh yeah, you're, you're, the, you're the nasty, lukewarm water people. Yeah, that's pretty unfortunate. I mean, it would even make people nauseous to drink the water. It was so gross because it was like lukewarm and had all these minerals in it, and it just, it just tasted bad, Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to latch onto that concept and he's going to say some really, really hard things for this church to hear. So the first thing I want you to see is is the indictment that Jesus brings this church. Jesus brings an indictment, a scathing one, on this church. Look, Look at verse 14, if you're with me, in Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That word, beginning, the beginning of God's creation, describing Jesus. It, it's archaic in Greek, and it means uh, the the founder or the, the 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 designer. It's where we get our word architect from. So it's saying that Jesus is the the faithful and true witness. He's the architect of all that you see in the world, and he has something he wants to say to the church. He says, "I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot." Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this letter is that in every other letter that Jesus writes, except for one, the letter to Sardis, every other letter that Jesus has written up to this point, he has had something encouraging to say to the church. He said something that he wants to point out and say, you know, you've done this really, really well. I I love this about your church. I want to encourage this. Uh, in, in you because you're doing this really, really well. But in two letters, and both in the one that he wrote to Sardis and to this church, Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. Now, this is Jesus, like the most encouraging, compassionate, gracious, merciful human that has ever lived, the, the God who became human, the one that, like, he no one lived a life more compassionate and merciful and gracious than Jesus, and he can't find anything encouraging to say to this church. This church is lukewarm, right? So this is what Jesus brings as an accusation. You are lukewarm. You're not cold, and you're not hot, and I wish you were one or the other because you're just lukewarm, now what does that mean? What does it mean to not be cold or not be hot? Uh, a lot of times I think as people have read this passage in the past, if you grew up in church, maybe you've heard this passage before. This is the, f- the most famous out of the seven letters. So a lot of people are familiar with this text. But, but a lot of people when they get to this section of scripture, they think, well, this idea of being hot is being passionate for Jesus. It's like having intensity and passion for Jesus. And, and the idea of being cold it's the opposite. It's not having passion for Jesus. It's being indifferent to and cold to Jesus. And, and actually, that's, that's not what Jesus is trying to describe because in this text, in this passage, it's more nuanced than that. Both hot and cold are actually good things. Is, is anybody a fan of hot coffee? You like hot coffee? Yep, a few of you. Any, any cold coffee fans? You like a cold brew or an iced coffee? A few of you. Any lukewarm coffee fans? I mean, have you ever, like, just sipped a c- cup of coffee that's been sitting out for two days? And you're like, oh, that is, that's gross, right? In fact, actually, right now, my, my good friend David Adair, who is our lead pastor of our Edmond congregation, uh, he, he is this morning preaching the same text. And in his congregation, they're serving three different types of coffee. They've got hot coffee, and it's labeled. And they've got iced coffee, and that's labeled. And then he has lukewarm coffee, and it's labeled. I was like, man, that's a great idea, but you're on the Edmond budget, and I'm on the South OKC budget. So we're not. <laughs> doing that but that's a great idea I'll tell our church about that right so 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 he's serving you know lukewarm coffee no one's gonna drink it because it's gross how many of you love sitting in a hot tub just really relaxing unplugging you know some of you are like no I, I don't understand you. if you do not like to sit in a hot tub uh I, it's so weird to me uh some of you if you're an athlete you love an ice bath maybe you don't love it but you love the way it makes you feel right so you get in a nice bath how many of you just love you can't wait to get home and take a lukewarm bath like that's really what i want today after after my hard day of work i've got to sit in a lukewarm puddle of water it's going to really help my stress levels go down see see we love hot and cold hot and cold are good And what Jesus is saying is you're neither. I wish you were one or the other, but you're neither. You're lukewarm. What he's doing is he's referencing their water system and he's saying Hierapolis has the hot springs and it's great, it's relaxing, it's good. Uh, Colossae's got the icy, cold, refreshing water, but you and Laodicea, you become like your water system. You're lukewarm and you're not good for anything. Now this is Jesus talking to the church. Lukewarm water is useless water, Now, in in church history, if you kind of try to assess what have the, 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 the people, the men and women throughout church history thought about this text? And one of the things that you see pretty quickly is that they really believed that hot, hot water, was representative of having passion and intensity for Jesus. And this idea of being cold was this idea of having purity and holiness in your life. And what Jesus is saying is, you, this church in Laodicea, What's happened is you no longer have passion. You're completely indifferent to me. You've now started to treat me like Joshua Bell in this metro station where I'm I'm offering something beautiful and you're just walking right past. You're totally unmoved. You're completely indifferent. But you're also not even cold. Like there's no holiness in your church. There's no purity in your church. So here's this church in the city that instead of, of being unique to the city and offering something valuable to the city, they become just like their city and they no longer have anything good to offer the lukewarm. Now, how did they get to this place? How does a church get to the place where you're unmoved by Jesus? How do you get to a place where you're totally indifferent to Jesus? Later on in verse 20, it's going to tell us that they've actually become so indifferent to Jesus that Jesus is now outside of the walls of the church, knocking on the door, trying to get back in. How do you get to the place in your own personal life or as a church where Jesus is not even in the church anymore trying to get in. Well, we're told in verse 17, look at this. This is the connection of how they became so indifferent and so unmoved by who God was. For you say, Jesus says, for you say, I am rich. I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. Could Jesus stack up more words to bring a more scathing indictment to this church? You are wretched, pitiable. You're poor, blind, naked. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the problem with you, Laodicea, and this is going to start landing for us too. He says the problem for you is that you've become just like your city you live in a wealthy city. You live in a city of comfort. You live in a city of consumerism. And so what's happened to you is that you've now kind of adopted the same mantra that the city is, is, is espousing. I have become rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. He's saying that's the problem with you is now you, in, in your own soul, you, you feel like you have all that you need in and of, it, of yourself. You, you have all that you need, and, and you no longer realize the reality. Jesus is saying, like, you've adopted the heart of your city, the, the culture of your city. It's now inundated in your own church, and you become completely indifferent to me. This is the opposite of what he says to the church at Smyrna. Let me just read you this. This is in Revelation 2, 9. He says to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. But to this church, he says, you say that you're rich, but you're actually poor. You say that you're rich, but you're actually poor. Instead of this church being a church that was uh, for the city in a unique way, offering a countercultural presence of Jesus to the world around them. What had happened is the city of Laodicea had formed and shaped the people in the church so much that you could no longer tell the difference between those outside the church and those inside the church. They looked the exact same. And they were now saying the same stuff. We've become rich just like the city. We've prospered. We need nothing. In a word, this church was self-sufficient. And that self-sufficiency In them had just bred all kinds of apathy and indifference and being unmoved by who Jesus even was. Now what does this have to do with us today, 2,000 years later, living in Oklahoma? Well, I think there's actually a lot of similarities between life in Laodicea in the first century and life in Oklahoma in 2018. Uh, If you could pick one word, or to be like more grammatically accurate for all of you English teachers out there that I don't want to get an email from, if you could pick one like compound word (laughs) that would best describe life for Americans in 2018, I think it would be self-sufficient. Isn't that kind of the whole vision of our lives? Isn't that the vision of the American dream is to become uh, to the place in your life where you can say, I have become rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I mean, isn't that why we work so hard throughout the week? Isn't that what we're striving for and after as a culture in our city? Like what we really want is to get to the place in life where we can say the phrase either internally to ourselves or to our family or to even the people behind us or whatever. We want to say, I've become rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I'm self-sufficient. This is the vision that our culture has offered us And without even realizing, you and I have just been consuming what our culture's been giving us, so much so that we're formed in ways we don't even realize that we're formed. Life in Oklahoma is a lot like life in Laodicea in the first century because you and I have learned to create kind of this illusion, if you will, of heaven on earth but without God. It's really easy to do that, isn't it? To live your life in such a way that uh, we've created this utopia but there is no God there. Um, it, it's weird if you go back and look at some of the older movies, like in the, the 80s. I think of Blade Runner, if you're a Blade Runner fan. Uh, Blade Runner, the original in the 80s, it had this vision of the future that was a dystopian vision. It was a vision of like, life is going to be bleak and dark and dangerous, and it's going to be chaotic, and and, and, and all the, it's going to be like really, really hard. And then we arrived at 2018, and instead of it being like that, instead what we have is a life where we live in this modern-day utopia. We've got dog parks, we've got beautiful homes, we've got new restaurants popping up in our city left and right on every corner. We've got bigger and bigger movie theaters. We've got all kinds of great coffee shops and malls. You and I live in a world that essentially everything that you could ever imagine or want is at your fingertips. And maybe you don't have the money for it, but you can at least dream about it or you can at least hope for it and you can click and you can unplug and you can shop and you can buy and you can, you can eat and drink and you can be merry. And in all of these comforts that we live in, what tends to happen is that somewhere along the way we become self-sufficient and we no longer even need Jesus anyway. One of the things that I keep discovering with my non-Christian friends is not that they have real objections to Christianity like, well, hell is a problem for me or I don't like the idea of God's wrath or there's some hard text in the Old Testament or whatever. A lot of times what I'm noticing with my non-Christian friends is why do I even need Jesus anyway? My life's great. Like, I have everything I've ever wanted and I have a vacation coming up if I get sad. I've got the weekend on its way I've got a party that I've scheduled I've got there's all these comforts there's all these things around us that somewhere along the way we've created a kingdom for ourselves but no King Jesus present and this is what had happened in this church what what's sad about living where we live is that it has this weird effect on making us blind to some of the greatest realities in our life Uh, this quote hit me really hard by Bob Hostetler he says the problem for us is not that we have a few comforts the problem is that our comforts have us it's not wrong to have a few nice things. It's not wrong to live in a nice house or drive a nice car or make a lot of money. None of those things are wrong, but what's, what's so easy to happen in our souls is that those become the things that we want and we become prosperous and wealthy or at least have enough to, to get by and we feel good and we no longer sense any sort of need or desire for Jesus. This is described in uh, in uh, Amazon, wow, Uh, in Amos, which is a very different thing than Amazon. Uh, Amos is actually a book in the Bible. Uh, Amos chapter six, here's what it says. It says, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but, listen to this, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. That passage is so crazy. It's like none of those things are necessarily bad, other than drinking wine from a bowl. Like you should probably just stick to a glass. But all those other comforts, there's nothing bad about that. The thing that's bad about that is that there's a way where you can just become so inundated with those comforts that you forget that there's this, it says, who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And what I've noticed in my own soul and what's so easy to happen in our church is exactly what was happening to the church of Laodicea. There's all this internal mess and things in our soul that should grieve us, but you and I are so inundated with riches and comfort and pleasures in our world that we no longer even sense the need to grieve over the depths of our sin. We become totally totally lukewarm and indifferent and unmoved to Jesus. This is, in many ways, what I want to call existential whack-a-mole. It's a game that we love to play. It's like we have at times in our lives, these weird questions that we don't know what to do with that rise to the surface about the meaning of life or what happens after we die or is there really a, a higher power that could be the God of the Bible or whatever. We have these existential realities that start to hit. And instead of leaning into the tension of that, what we do is we, we take a, a latte, bam, and hit it. You know, Take a vacation, bam, and we hit it. We go online and buy something, and we and we unplug, and we I mean, and that's what we do over and over and over. Instead of dealing with these deep questions, we just unplug, and try to enjoy what we have, our kingdom without the king. All the while, Jesus is like Joshua Bell was, in the de- in the D.C. metro station, just standing there offering something beautiful, and we're hurriedly walking right past him to get to work. This is the Church of Laodicea. And this is Jesus' critique of our church. Now, here's what's, here's what's interesting. I want you to realize this. This isn't Jesus critiquing the world. This isn't Jesus writing a letter, Dear world, I have this against you. You've, you, you've become lukewarm. This is Jesus writing to who? Christians in the church. Dear church, this is what I have against you. That even you in the church, who come on a Sunday, even you in the church that that occasionally read your Bibles and pray, even you in the church that profess to be followers of Jesus, you, you have become lukewarm. You're not cold or you're not hot. It's easy for even Christians to treat Jesus and be totally indifferent and unmoved by him. Tim Keller, he says this, he says individuals could profess not to be secular people, To have religious faith, yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life decisions and conduct. This is because in a secular age, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships, and financial options with no higher goal than their own present time personal happiness. How do you know if you become lukewarm? You start choosing lovers and spouses careers and friendships and financial options with no higher goal than your own present time personal happiness that's how you know that you've started to treat Jesus in such a way that you just walk right past him no longer noticing or caring so how does Jesus feel about this church I mean honestly like how does he feel about this church Uh, well here's what he says look at verse 16 and this is his warning to the church he says so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus, could you please be a little bit more honest with us about how you feel? He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that by the word, but, but that word spit, by the way, uh, in Greek means vomit. Like the translators are being nice here by translating it into spit. But what he's saying is, you're so gross that I'm going to vomit you out. That concept of you calling on my name and just walking right past me, pretending as if i don 't even exist and have no weight or bearing on your life anymore you 're totally unmoved by me you 're indifferent to me it 's so gross to me that it makes me want to vomit. I remember when I was a, a little a little guy and uh, i 'm one of ten i had I had I have nine brothers and sisters, big family, and my sisters lived in another smaller type house that was connected to our house it 's hard to explain, uh, like another smaller room slash house. And uh, they both left overseas on a mission trip. They went to Cambodia uh, to serve, and they were going to be gone for several years. And this was good for me because I remembered right before that somehow they had purchased all of these iced Starbucks drinks, and they had just came out. Like the iced Starbucks drinks had just come out, and they had like whole cases of them. I don't know if they were given to them or if they like blew all of their money on these drinks, but they had them stacked in the room. And I remember thinking, I just went to the airport to send my sisters off to another country I'm gonna go drink all of their iced coffee. So I ran in and I, uh, seriously, first thing, we got home from the airport, I ran into the room, I opened one up, it was like in July, I think, and I just went to chug it back and instead of liquid, it just clumped out into my mouth. I didn't realize that it wasn't refrigerated and it had completely curdled. And I can almost still taste the flavor right now as I tell you the story, and it makes me nauseous, right? It's like it hit. It just wasn't what I expected. I, I expected like this refreshing iced Starbucks drink and it was clumpy, curdled coffee milk. It's disgusting. Jesus is writing to this church and he's like, that's what it's like with you. That's what it's like. You have everything you need. And you don't have me you've got the house, you've got the stuff, you've got the relationship, you've got all that you need, and you say to yourself, whether out loud or to yourself, I've become rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. And Jesus says, that's lukewarm, and it makes me want to vomit. Makes me want to vomit. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking This is Jesus, the one who at the very beginning of the letter is described as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This is not someone that's saying untrue things. He's coming to them as the faithful and the true witness, and he's giving them this warning. If you don't change, if you don't repent, which is really what that word means, then I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, If the letter stopped here, this would be the most depressing letter in the Bible. (laughs) It would just be sad and depressing. But thankfully, the letter goes on. I want to look at verse 18 with you. And I want you to see the invitation because this is what God does is he says the hard thing. And he doesn't have anything encouraging to say, but he does have an invitation to offer these lukewarm Christians. And if you're here and this is a struggle for you because it is a struggle for me. He has, an, he has an offer on the table for us. He has an invitation, and here's what it is in verse 18. I counsel you. Can, can we just pause there for a minute? This is God speaking, and instead of saying, I command you, I demand that you, he, he says, I counsel you. Like, I just want to come and give you the right advice right now. I counsel you. What is his counsel? Buy from me cold, refined by fire, So that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, the the thing that Jesus is is not saying is, I don't want you to have comfort. I don't want you to be happy. I don't want you to be joyful. I don't want you to to feel fulfilled. No, he's saying, you're getting all of that elsewhere and it's not gonna work. I want you to know that I'm the only one that can provide you the riches that you really are after. I'm the only one that can provide you the, the, the clothing that can cover your shame. I'm the only one that can open up your blind eyes to see. Come to me for that. Stop being so self-sufficient. This idea of buying from Jesus, isn't that a weird concept? Jesus says, come buy for me? Is he saying like, use all your wealth, lay out a sea, and come and purchase actual stuff for me? No, no, no. This idea of buying comes from an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 55. And here's what God says to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And this is where we get this idea. He says, come everyone who thirsts Which, by the way, is everyone. We have this spiritual thirst that can't be quenched anywhere else. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, what do you do if you have no money? Come, buy and eat. That's the irony. Come, buy wine and milk. How do you buy it? Without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. What Jesus is saying to this church at Laodicea is I want you to see who you really are. You're not wealthy. You're not rich. You're not clothed in this beautiful clothing that you've created. You're actually poor and you're naked and you're blind. But that's okay. That's exactly how I want you is poor, naked, and blind. Just come to me as you are and buy from me. He says, come, three things, come buy gold refined by fire. Despite the city having a reputation of being financially well off, this church is spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus is saying, come, buy from me spiritual riches. Come, and I will give you spiritual riches he says come by white by white garments Uh, despite the city having a reputation of having this major clothing industry creating uh, black wool garments that would cover people this church is spiritually naked and he says come to me as you are in your nakedness and i will clothe you with white garments the righteousness of jesus that he's giving to us And then the third thing he says is come by eye salve. The city had a reputation of of producing this curative eye salve that they would put on blind eyes and, and oftentimes those blind eyes would see and yet this church is spiritually blind and Jesus is writing to him and he says, listen, just come to me and I will open up your blind eyes. Jesus loves you as you are in your nakedness, in your poverty, in your blindness and he's saying stop pretending that you have all that you need in other areas, just come to me and I'll give you what you need I'll give you what you need this is how, what he invites this church to do and us so where do we go from here well I, I, what's interesting about this letter is I kind of try to wrap it up and bring it to a close what's interesting about this letter to me is that it's the very last one not just because it was on the last circular route if you travel from church to church this would have been the last stop but but it's last because in many ways this is like the capstone to all seven churches this is Jesus writing not to just this church, but he's writing to all churches and even our church today. And that's why the very last verse in this passage is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Because what Jesus is trying to say is that there's something about each of these churches that we've looked at over the last seven weeks, there's something about these texts that if we don't grab a hold of, if we don't see, then he's gonna continue speaking and writing to us, I have this against you, I have this against you, I have this against you. So he's writing because Jesus wants to shape and correct his church. Listen to what he says to the church at Ephesus. He, He says, you have great theology, but you don't have the type of love for me that you had at first. I want you to return to your first love. To the church at Pergamum, he says, you love me and you love people and that's good, but you've, you've drifted into false teaching in the name of love. He says to the church at Thyatira, he says, you've embraced cheap grace. You, you want me a savior, but you're, you're, you're totally unwilling to submit to anything about me being Lord over your life. He writes to the church at Sardis and he says, you have this reputation for being alive, but actually I see through that, you're dead. And the gap, the tragic gap between what is reputation and what is reality is a chasm. He writes to the church finally at Laodicea and he says, you are lukewarm and it makes me want to vomit. How do you handle all of these hard words from Jesus? I don't know about you, but this series, what it's done for me is continually reshape my vision of who Jesus really is. Because sometimes I think of Jesus as like this this fairy in lavender tights that's like, Throwing lollipops to people, you know, just here, you have some happiness. And it's, he he would never say anything mean. He would never say anything hard. And yet here Jesus is saying very, very hard words. Why? Well, look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, what Jesus is doing here is not a hatred of the church. It's not a, I can't stand you. I don't even want you around. What Jesus is doing for this church is I love you so much that I can see through what the facade is and I can see what's really going on and I've got some things that I want to address you on because I really do love you. Love is often saying the hard thing. Love is saying the thing that is, isn't easy to hear. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans out there? A few of you like good literature. That's good. Um, one of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, C.S. Lewis, he describes Aslan that I think is actually a really helpful way to view Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, uh, this is a conversation between Mr. Beaver and uh, Susan. So listen to this. Aslan is a lion, the beaver says. A lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And what Jesus is coming to us, he's coming to us not as this safe, I just want to say the right thing and not offend you, and then walk away. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to come to us as in in no way the safe king, but as a good king, as the king that really does love us, and he loves us enough to say the very, very hard thing. So I just want to ask you, like, where in this series has the Lord spoken to you? Where in this series has he drawn out something? Where is he pressed on something? Maybe it's a lack of love for him that you used to have. Maybe it's a lack of passion and desire. Maybe you've drifted into some teaching where instead of embracing the reality of what scripture unpacks, you started to embrace what culture offers. Where is it for you uh, in, in the series that Jesus is addressing you. Where's Jesus for you become like that man in the D.C. metro station that you just kind of walk right past and have no interest in even stopping to pay any attention to? I want you to pay attention to that because here's how Jesus closes the letter in verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Not just the door of your heart. He's actually standing at the door of the church, knocking, wanting to get back in. He says, I stand at the door and and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with him. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Jesus is doing for you is He's standing outside of our church. He's standing outside of your life, and He's knocking. It's like, hey, do you hear me? Can you hear me knocking? Can you hear me calling to you? Can you hear me inviting you? He's wanting you to come and open up the door. He's being patient. He's not busting in. He's being gracious. He's not just demand demanding. He's coming in and he's, he's, he's saying, would you just invite me in? How crazy is it that this is the vision of Jesus that John gives. There's all these ways that Jesus has called out to you and I'm just asking, are you going to open the door? Or is this just going to be another series that you kind of put away in your brain, forget about and move on? We are these seven churches and Jesus is coming to us and he's knocking at the door, calling, inviting, wanting us to open the door. So I want to invite you to stand with me, if you will. There's a lot of ways that you and I need to respond to this. There's a lot of ways that you and I need to repent of various things that Jesus is pressing on, various things that he's pointing out. But at the end of the day, what I want to remind you of is just the good news of the gospel. In this passage in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea, he offers to clothe them of their nakedness. He offers to heal them of their blindness. He offers to give them spiritual riches. How does Jesus do that? Here's how Jesus does that. Jesus can offer you a white robe Because on the cross, he was stripped naked, publicly shamed, so that you could be covered of your shame and your sin. Jesus was blindfolded, and they beat him before he went to the cross, and they said, prophesy who hit you. Jesus was was blindfolded and beaten so that you could have your eyes opened to the reality of who he is. Jesus, on the cross, he became spiritually poor, by absorbing the full weight of our sin and the full weight of his just wrath against our sin in our place for our sins. Jesus became poor for you so that you could have his spiritual riches and his body was broken on the cross for you. His blood was shed so that you could be forgiven. This is what Jesus offers you. The way he can offer you to be clothed with a white robe is through his death and through his resurrection.